Book eighteen, chapters forty through forty seven of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book eighteen, chapter forty. In vain, then, do some babble with most empty presumption, saying that Egypt has understood the reckoning of the stars for more than a hundred thousand years. For in what books have they collected that number who learned letters from Isis, their mistress, not much more than two thousand years ago? Varro, who has declared this, is no small authority in history, and it does not disagree with the truth of the divine books. For as it is not yet six thousand years since the first man, who is called Adam, are not those to be ridiculed rather than refuted, who try to persuade us of anything regarding a space of time so different from, and contrary to, the ascertained truth? For what historian of the past should we credit more than him who has also predicted things to come which we now see fulfilled? And the very disagreement of the historians among themselves furnishes a good reason why we ought rather to believe him who does not contradict the divine history which we hold. But, on the other hand, the citizens of the impious city, scattered everywhere through the earth, when they read the most learned writers, none of whom seems to be of contemptible authority, and find them disagreeing among themselves about affairs most remote from the memory of our age, cannot find out whom they ought to trust. But we, being sustained by divine authority in the history of our religion, have no doubt that whatever is opposed to it is most false, whatever may be the case regarding other things in secular books, which, whether true or false, yield nothing of moment to our living rightly and happily. CHAPTER Forty One. But let us omit further examination of history, and return to the philosophers from whom we digress to these things. They seem to have laboured in their studies for no other end than to find out how to live in a way proper for laying hold of blessedness. Why then have the disciples dissented from their masters, and the fellow-disciples from one another, except because as men they have sought after these things by human sense and human reasonings? Now, although there might be among them a desire of glory, so that each wished to be thought wiser and more acute than another, and in no way addicted to the judgment of others, but the inventor of his own dogma and opinion, yet I may grant that there were some, or even very many of them, whose love of truth severed them from their teachers or fellow-disciples, that they might strive for what they thought was the truth, whether it was so or not. But what can human misery do, or how or where can it reach forth, so as to attain blessedness, if divine authority does not lead it? Finally, let our authors, among whom the canon of the sacred books is fixed and bounded, be far from disagreeing in any respect. It is not without good reason, then, that not merely a few people prating in the schools and gymnasia in captious disputations, but so many and great people, both learned and unlearned, in countries and cities, have believed that God spoke to them or by them, that is, the canonical writers, when they wrote these books. There ought indeed to be but few of them, lest on account of their multitude what ought to be religiously esteemed should grow cheap, and yet not so few that their agreement should not be wonderful. 
for among the multitude of philosophers who in their works have left behind them the monument of their dogmas no one will easily find any who agree in all their opinions but to show this is too long a task for this work but what author of any sect is so approved in this demon-worshipping city that the rest who have differed from or opposed him in opinion have been disapproved the epicureans asserted that human affairs were not under the providence of the gods and the stoics holding the opposite opinion agree that they were ruled and defended by favourable and tutelary gods yet were not both sects famous among the athenians i wonder then why anaxagoras was accused of a crime for saying that the sun was a burning stone and denying that it was a god at all while in the same city epicurus flourished gloriously and lived securely although he not only did not believe that the sun or any star was a god but contended that neither jupiter nor any of the gods dwelt in the world at all so that the prayers and supplications of men might reach them were not both aristippus and antisthenes there two noble philosophers and both socratic yet they placed the chief end of life within bounds so diverse and contradictory that the first made the delight of the body the chief good while the other asserted that man was made happy mainly by the virtue of the mind the one also said that the wise man should flee from the republic the other that he should administer its affairs yet did not each gather disciples to follow his own sect indeed in the conspicuous and well-known porch in gymnasia in gardens in places public and private they openly strove in bands each for his own opinion some asserting there was one world others innumerable worlds some that this world had a beginning others that it had not some that it would perish others that it would exist always some that it was governed by the divine mind others by chance and accident some that souls are immortal others that they are mortal and of those who asserted their immortality some said they transmigrated through beasts others that it was by no means so while of those who asserted their mortality some said they perished immediately after the body others that they survived either a little while or a longer time but not always some fixing supreme good in the body some in the mind some in both others adding to the mind and body external good things some thinking that the bodily senses ought to be trusted always some not always others never now what people senate power or public dignity of the impious city has ever taken care to judge between all these and other well-nigh innumerable dissensions of the philosophers approving and accepting some and disapproving and rejecting others has it not held in its bosom at random without any judgment and confusedly so many controversies of men at variance not about fields houses or anything of a pecuniary nature but about those things which make life either miserable or happy even if some true things were said in it yet falsehoods were uttered with the same license so that such a city has not amiss received the title of the mystic babylon for babylon means confusion as we remember we have already explained nor does it matter to the devil its king how they wrangle among themselves in contradictory errors since all alike deservedly belong to him on account of their great and varied impiety but that nation that people that city that republic these israelites to whom the oracles of god were entrusted by no means confounded with similar license false prophets with the true prophets but agreeing together and differing in nothing acknowledged and upheld the authentic authors of their sacred books 
these were their philosophers, these were their sages, divines, prophets, and teachers of probity and piety. Whoever was wise and lived according to them was wise and lived not according to men, but according to God who hath spoken by them. If sacrilege is forbidden there, God hath forbidden it. If it is said, Honour thy father and thy mother, God hath commanded it. If it is said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and other similar commandments, not human lips, but the divine oracles have enounced them. Whatever truth certain philosophers, amid their false opinions, were able to see, and strove by laborious discussions to persuade men of, such as that God had made this world, and himself most providently governs it, or of the nobility of the virtues, of the love of country, of fidelity and friendship, of good works, and everything pertaining to virtuous manners, although they know not to what end and what rule all these things were to be referred, all these by words prophetic, that is, divine, although spoken by men, were commended to the people in that city, and not inculcated by contention and arguments, so that he who should know them might be afraid of contemning, not the wit of men, but the oracle of God. CHAPTER Forty Two. One of the Ptolemies, kings of Egypt, desired to know and have these sacred books. For after Alexander of Macedon, who is also styled the Great, had by his most wonderful but by no means enduring power subdued the whole of Asia, yea, almost the whole world, partly by force of arms, partly by terror, and, among other kingdoms of the east, had entered and obtained Judea also, on his death his generals did not peaceably divide that most ample kingdom among them for a possession, but but rather dissipated it, wasting all things by wars. Then Egypt began to have the Ptolemies as her kings. The first of them, the son of Lagus, carried many captive out of Judea into Egypt. But another Ptolemy, called Philadelphus, who succeeded him, permitted all whom he had brought under the yoke to return free, and more than that sent kingly gifts to the temple of God, and begged Eleazar, who was the high priest, to give him the scriptures which he had heard by report were truly divine, and therefore greatly desired to have in that most noble library he had made. When the high priest had sent them to him in Hebrew, he afterwards demanded interpreters of him, and there were given him seventy-two, out of each of the twelve tribes six men, most learned in both languages, to wit the Hebrew and Greek, and their translation is now by custom called the Septuagint. It is reported indeed that there was an agreement in their words so wonderful, stupendous, and plainly divine, that when they had sat at this work, each one apart, for so it pleased Ptolemy to test their fidelity, they differed from each other in no word which had the same meaning and force, or in the order of the words, but as if the translators had been one, so what all had translated was one, because in very deed the one spirit had been in them all." and they received so wonderful a gift of God, in order that the authority of these scriptures might be commended not as human, but divine, as indeed it was, for the benefit of the nations who should at some time believe, as we now see them doing. CHAPTER 43 for while there were other interpreters who translated these sacred oracles out of the Hebrew tongue into Greek, as Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian, and also that translation which, as the name of the author is unknown, is quoted as the fifth edition, yet the church has received this Septuagint translation just as if it were the only one, and it has been used by the Greek Christian people, most of whom are not aware that there is any other. 
From this translation there has also been made a translation in the Latin tongue, which the Latin churches use. Our times, however, have enjoyed the advantage of the presbyter Jerome, a man most learned and skilled in all three languages, who translated these same scriptures into the Latin speech, not from the Greek, but from the Hebrew. But although the Jews acknowledge this very learned labor of his to be fruitful, while they contend that the Septuagint translators have erred in many places, still the churches of Christ judge that no one should be preferred to the authority of so many men, chosen for this very great work by Eleazar, who was then high priest. For even if there had not appeared in them one spirit, without doubt divine, and the seventy learned men had, after the manner of men, compared together the words of their translation, that what pleased them all might stand, no single translator ought to be preferred to them. But, since so great a sign of divinity has appeared in them, certainly, if any other translator of their scriptures from the Hebrew into any other tongue is faithful, in that case he agrees with these seventy translators, and if he is not found to agree with them, then we ought to believe that the prophetic gift is with them." For the same spirit who was in the prophets when they spoke these things was also in the seventy men when they translated them, so that assuredly they could also say something else, just as if the prophet himself had said both, because it would be the same spirit who said both, and could say the same thing differently, so that, although the words were not the same, yet the same meaning should shine forth to those of good understanding, and could omit or add something, so that even by this it might be shown that there was in that work not human bondage, which the translator owed to the words, but rather divine power, which filled and ruled the mind of the translator. Some, however, have thought that the Greek copies of the Septuagint version should be emended from the Hebrew copies, yet they did not dare to take away what the Hebrew lacked and the Septuagint had, but only added what was found in the Hebrew copies and was lacking in the Septuagint, and noted them by placing at the beginning of the verses certain marks in the form of stars, which they call asterisks. And those things which the Hebrew copies have not, but the Septuagint have, they have in like manner marked at the beginning of the verses by horizontal spit-shaped marks, like those by which we denote ounces. And many copies having these marks are circulated even in Latin. But we cannot, without inspecting both kinds of copies, find out those things which are neither omitted nor added, but expressed differently, whether they yield another meaning not in itself unsuitable, or can be shown to explain the same meaning in another way. If, then, as it behooves us, we behold nothing else in these scriptures than what the Spirit of God has spoken through men, if anything is in the Hebrew copies and is not in the version of the seventy, the Spirit of God did not choose to say it through them, but only through the prophets. But whatever is in the Septuagint, and not in the Hebrew copies, the same Spirit chose rather to say through the latter, thus showing that both were prophets. For in that manner he spoke as he chose, some things through Isaiah, some through Jeremiah, some through several prophets, or else the same thing through this prophet and through that. Further, whatever is found in both editions, that one and the same Spirit willed to say through both, but so as that the former proceeded in prophesying, and the latter followed in prophetically interpreting them. Because, as the one Spirit of peace was in the former, when they spoke true and concordant words, so the selfsame one Spirit hath appeared in the latter, when, without mutual conference, they yet interpreted all things as if with one mouth. Chapter 44 
But someone may say, How shall I know whether the prophet Jonah said to the Ninevites, Yet three days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, or forty days? For who does not see that the prophet could not say both, when he was sent to terrify the city by the threat of imminent ruin? For if its destruction was to take place on the third day, it certainly could not be on the fortieth, but if on the fortieth, then certainly not on the third. If then I am asked which of these Jonah may have said, I rather think what is read in the Hebrew, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet the seventy, interpreting long afterward, could say what was different and yet pertinent to the matter, and agree in the selfsame meaning, although under a different signification. And this may admonish the reader not to despise the authority of either, but to raise himself above the history, and search for those things which the history itself was written to set forth. These things indeed took place in the city of Nineveh, but they also signified something else too great to apply to that city. Just as, when it happened that the prophet himself was three days in the whale's belly, it signified besides that he who was lord of all the prophets should be three days in the depths of hell. Wherefore, if that city is rightly held as prophetically representing the church of the Gentiles, to wit, as brought down by penitence, so as no longer to be what it had been, since this was done by Christ in the church of the Gentiles, which Nineveh represented, Christ himself was signified both by the forty and by the three days. By the forty, because he spent that number of days with his disciples after the resurrection, and then ascended into heaven, but by the three days, because he rose on the third day. So that, if the reader desires nothing else than to adhere to the history of events, he may be aroused from his sleep by the Septuagint interpreters, as well as the prophets, to search into the depth of the prophecy, as if they had said, In the forty days seek him in whom thou mayest also find the three days, the one thou wilt find in his ascension, the other in his resurrection." because that which could be most suitably signified by both numbers, of which one is used by Jonah the prophet, the other by the prophecy of the Septuagint version, the one and selfsame spirit hath spoken. I dread prolixity, so that I must not demonstrate this by many instances, in which the seventy interpreters may be thought to differ from the Hebrew, and yet, when well understood, are found to agree. For which reason I also, according to my capacity, following the footsteps of the apostles, who themselves have quoted prophetic testimonies from both, that is, from the Hebrew and the Septuagint, have thought that both should be used as authoritative, since both are one and divine. But let us now follow out as we can what remains. CHAPTER forty five. The Jewish nation no doubt became worse after it ceased to have prophets, just at the very time when, on the rebuilding of the temple after the captivity in Babylon, it hoped to become better. For so indeed did that carnal people understand what was foretold by Haggai the prophet, saying, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former. Now that this is said of the New Testament he showed a little above, where he says, evidently promising Christ, And I will move all nations, and the desired one shall come to all nations. In this passage the Septuagint translators giving another sense more suitable to the body than the head, that is, to the church than to Christ, have said by prophetic authority, The things shall come that are chosen of the Lord from all nations, that is, men, of whom Jesus saith in the gospel, Many are called, but few are chosen. 
For by such chosen ones of the nations there is built, through the new testament with living stones, a house of God far more glorious than that temple which was constructed by King Solomon, and rebuilt after the captivity. For this reason, then, that nation had no prophets from that time, but was afflicted with many plagues by kings of alien race, and by the Romans themselves, lest they should fancy that this prophecy of Haggai was fulfilled by that rebuilding of the temple. For not long after, on the arrival of Alexander, it was subdued, when, although there was no pillaging, because they dared not resist him, and thus, being very easily subdued, received him peaceably, yet the glory of that house was not so great as it was when under the free power of their own kings. Alexander indeed offered up sacrifices in the temple of God, not as a convert to his worship in true piety, but thinking, with impious folly, that he was to be worshipped along with false gods. Then Ptolemy, son of Lagus, whom I have already mentioned, after Alexander's death, carried them captive into Egypt. His successor, Ptolemy Philadelphus, most benevolently dismissed them, and by him it was brought about, as I have narrated a little before, that we should have the Septuagint version of the Scriptures. Then they were crushed by the wars which are explained in the books of the Maccabees. Afterward they were taken captive by Ptolemy, king of Alexandria, who was called Epiphanes. Then Antiochus, king of Syria, compelled them, by many and most grievous evils, to worship idols, and filled the temple itself with the sacrilegious superstitions of the Gentiles. Yet their most vigorous leader Judas, who was also called Maccabeus, after beating the generals of Antiochus, cleansed it from all that defilement of idolatry. But not long after, one Alcimus, although an alien from the sacerdotal tribe, was, through ambition, made pontiff, which was an impious thing. After almost fifty years, during which they never had peace, although they prospered in some affairs, Aristobulus first assumed the diadem among them, and was made both king and pontiff. Before that, indeed, from the time of their return from the Babylonish captivity and the rebuilding of the temple, they had not kings but generals or principes. Although a king himself may be called a prince from his principality in governing, and a leader because he leads the army, but it does not follow that all who are princes and leaders may also be called kings, as that Aristobulus was. He was succeeded by Alexander, also both king and pontiff, who is reported to have reigned over them cruelly. After him his wife Alexandra was queen of the Jews, and from her time downwards more grievous evils pursued them, for this Alexandra's sons, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, when contending with each other for the kingdom, called in the Roman forces against the nation of Israel, for Hyrcanus asked assistance from them against his brother. At that time Rome had already subdued Africa and Greece, and ruled extensively in other parts of the world also, and yet, as if unable to bear her own weight, had, in a manner, broken herself by her own size. For indeed she had come to grave domestic seditions, and from that to social wars, and by and by to civil wars, and had enfeebled and worn herself out so much that the changed state of the republic, in which she should be governed by kings, was now imminent. Pompey, then, a most illustrious prince of the Roman people, having entered Judea with an army, took the city, threw open the temple, not with the devotion of a suppliant, but with the authority of a conqueror, and went not reverently but profanely into the Holy of Holies, where it was lawful for none but the pontiff to enter. 
having established Hyrcanus in the pontificate, and set Antipater over the subjugated nation as guardian or procurator, as they were then called, he led Aristobulus with him bound. From that time the Jews also began to be Roman tributaries. Afterward Cassius plundered the very temple. Then after a few years it was their desert to have Herod, a king of foreign birth, in whose reign Christ was born. For the time had now come signified by the prophetic spirit through the mouth of the patriarch Jacob, when he says, There shall not be lacking a prince out of Judah, nor a teacher from his loins, until he shall come for whom it is reserved, and he is the expectation of the nations. There lacked not therefore a Jewish prince of the Jews until that Herod, who was the first king of a foreign race, received by them. Therefore it was now the time when he should come, for whom that was reserved, which is promised in the New Testament, that he should be the expectation of the nations. But it was not possible that the nations should expect he would come, as we see they did, to do judgment in the splendor of power, unless they should first believe in him when he came to suffer judgment in the humility of patience. CHAPTER Forty Six. While Herod therefore reigned in Judea, and Caesar Augustus was emperor at Rome, the state of the republic being already changed, and the world being set at peace by him, Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judah, man manifest out of a human virgin, God hidden out of God the Father. For so had the prophet foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb, and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. He did many miracles that he might commend God in himself, some of which, even as many as seemed sufficient to proclaim him, are contained in the evangelic scripture. The first of these is, that he was so wonderfully born, and the last, that with his body raised up again from the dead, he ascended into heaven. But the Jews who slew him, and would not believe in him, because it behooved him to die and rise again, were yet more miserably wasted by the Romans, and utterly rooted out from their kingdom, where aliens had already ruled over them, and were dispersed through the lands, so that indeed there is no place where they are not, and are thus by their own scriptures a testimony to us that we have not forged the prophecies about Christ. And very many of them, considering this, even before his passion, but chiefly after his resurrection, believed on him of whom it was predicted, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. But the rest are blinded of whom it was predicted, let their table be made before them a trap, and a retribution, and a stumbling-block, let their eyes be darkened lest they see, and bow down their back alway. Therefore, when they do not believe our scriptures, their own, which they blindly read, are fulfilled in them, lest perchance any one should say that the Christians have forged these prophecies about Christ, which are quoted under the name of the Sibyl, or of others, if such there be, who do not belong to the Jewish people. For us, indeed, those suffice which are quoted from the books of our enemies, to whom we make our acknowledgment on account of this testimony which, in spite of themselves, they contribute by their possession of these books, while they themselves are dispersed among all nations, wherever the church of Christ is spread abroad. For a prophecy about this thing was sent before in the Psalms, which they also read, where it was written, My God, his mercy shall prevent me. My God hath shown me concerning mine enemies, that thou shalt not slay them, lest they should at last forget thy law, disperse them in thy might. 
Therefore God has shown the church in her enemies, the Jews, the grace of his compassion, since, as saith the apostle, their offence is the salvation of the Gentiles. And therefore he has not slain them, that is, he has not let the knowledge that they are Jews be lost in them, although they have been conquered by the Romans, lest they should forget the law of God, and their testimony should be of no avail in this matter of which we treat. But it was not enough that he should say, Slay them not, lest they should at last forget thy law, unless he had also added, Disperse them. Because, if they had only been in their own land with that testimony of the scriptures, and not everywhere, certainly the church which is everywhere could not have had them as witnesses among all nations to the prophecies which were sent before concerning Christ. CHAPTER forty seven. Wherefore, if we read of any foreigner, that is, one neither born of Israel, nor received by that people into the canon of the sacred books, having prophesied something about Christ, if it has come or shall come to our knowledge, we can refer to it over and above, not that this is necessary, even if wanting, but because it is not incongruous to believe that even in other nations there may have been men to whom this mystery was revealed, and who were also impelled to proclaim it, whether they were partakers of the same grace, or had no experience of it, but were taught by bad angels, who, as we know, even confessed the present Christ, whom the Jews did not acknowledge. Nor do I think the Jews themselves dare contend that no one has belonged to God except the Israelites, since the increase of Israel began on the rejection of his elder brother. For in very deed there was no other people who were specially called the people of God, but they cannot deny that there have been certain men even of other nations who belonged, not by earthly but heavenly fellowship, to the true Israelites, the citizens of the country that is above. Because, if they deny this, they can be most easily confuted by the case of the holy and wonderful man Job, who was neither a native nor a proselyte, that is, a stranger joining the people of Israel, but, being bred of the Idumean race, arose there, and died there too, and who is so praised by the divine oracle, that no man of his times is put on a level with him as regards justice and piety. And although we do not find his date in the chronicles, yet from his book, which for its merits the Israelites have received as of canonical authority, we gather that he was in the third generation after Israel. And I doubt not it was divinely provided that from this one case we might know that among other nations also there might be men pertaining to the spiritual Jerusalem who have lived according to God and have pleased him. And it is not to be supposed that this was granted to any one, unless the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, was divinely revealed to him, who was pre-announced to the saints of old as yet to come in the flesh, even as he is announced to us as having come, that the selfsame faith through him may lead all to God who are predestinated to be the city of God, the house of God, and the temple of God. But whatever prophecies concerning the grace of God through Christ Jesus are quoted, they may be thought to have been forged by the Christians. So that there is nothing of more weight for confuting all sorts of aliens, if they contend about this matter, and for supporting our friends, if they are truly wise, than to quote those divine predictions about Christ which are written in the books of the Jews, who have been torn from their native abode and dispersed over the whole world, in order to bear this testimony, so that the Church of Christ has every Everywhere increased. End of Book Eighteen, Chapters Forty through Forty Seven. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas. www.logoslibrary.org.